morning. My question is, since we're, we're spending all this money, where are we getting the money from? And my second question is, if I can shit in your mouth. I apologize for that, Congressman. Uh, don't take that kind of language here on the Washington... Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you listen to Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm one of your hosts, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambeau. Hello. Hiya. Okay, Rambo, uh, were you out protesting the coronation today? I don't want to talk about it. With, with your countrymen? I don't want to talk about it. Don't rile me. You weren't? I, I thought I could hear your voice in here somewhere. I thought... I thought isn't that you? Not my king. That's not you. There's only one king, and his name is Elvis Armfrey. <laughs> This must make him feel great, just to, to walk down the to, to whatever, in the procession, just everyone going, boo! Did that actually happen? I actually don't know. because Yeah, that was this morning. There was a shitload of people. A lot of them got arrested, too. Like, they shut down the protesters and stole their signs. Yeah, I know. The uh, fucking Charlie boy, even though we have, obviously, a right to freedom of speech here, you don't on the day that he got coronated using our money to pay for it. Because uh, he changed that law. And those people can go to jail for a year. But I tell you what, worth it. I love this part. No, like, yo, not my king of this guy at the end. Down with the crown! That was you. That was you. Down with the crown. That is how I feel. <laughs> you know what? I just think it's so out of touch what he's done and i think it's kind of like spitting in our faces i know a lot of people like oh charlie's just like you know he's a bumbling etonian mess of a man but he's just i know he didn't go to Eton, but i'm just using that as an example but he's just fucking i hate it like you know 25 percent of london lives below the poverty line 14 million people use food banks but he used you know, he got two fucking $200 million pounds when his mother died. Why didn't he pay for his fucking stupid party using his own money? Why did he have to use our money? He doesn't know how much a pint of fucking milk costs. Cravendale is expensive, but I drink it. He can fuck off. 125 million quid for the taxpayers to fund this whole coronation. Nonsense. It's disgusting. I think my favorite uh, story that came out about it was... Uh, the cocky pranksters who mowed a giant penis onto the famous grounds of the Royal Crescent in Bath, England. That, that I got I to gotta hand enjoyed. it to them. That was pretty great. And just visually stunning because you get like, you know, the uh, luxurious, the you know, uh, Royal Crescent and the, and the grounds and the lawns. And then you just got this big, huge cock and balls. Um, def- definitely pretty good. I, I'm, I'm sure Charles got a kick out of that. Um, they did really well. I enjoy that for them. What's funny about this this coronation party? You know who's performing there? Yeah, Katy Perry, because everyone else turned it down. Lionel Richie. Oh, that's a weird one. I didn't yeah, know Lionel Richie, like doing what? dancing Why? on the ceiling. Is is that like <laughs> a like? Was he one of the only people they could find, or 
is yes. King Charles and Camilla like a big fan of Lionel Richie? This is my favorite, one of my favorite things about it, and I wish he'd done it. So they had the fucking cheek and the fucking nerve to ask Elton John to come and do their coronet. <laughs> Elton fucking John, who sang at his friend Princess Diana's funeral, right? They had the fucking cheek to ask him. Elton John obviously turned them down, but what I wish he had done, he said, well, yes, Charles, I will, I will gladly come and play your coronation. And then I wish when it came time for him to be on the telly, Elton John, you know, he's cracking his knuckles, he's getting ready to play his fucking pianist song. He just turned around and said, this one's for you, Diana. And then he just rocked out candle in the wind whilst glaring at Camilla and Charles. I wish he'd done that and made a statement. I would have had so, like, way more respect for Elton John if he'd have done that instead of just politely declining. But that shows you what cunts they are. Imagine asking him to come and play the coronation. Yeah, that's some cheek right there. I'm surprised Nick Cave didn't play it, because wasn't he there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Nick Cave was there. Uh, That's the end of the straw for me and Nick Cave now. The wrong member of the birthday party died, and uh, I shall never, ever speak to Nick Cave. Next well, you're, time you're we're cutting him off. In the pub together. You're cutting him off for uh, showing up at the coronation. Yeah, I would tell him off. Who does he think he is? Fuck off. I read some statement that he has on his Red Hand blog where he yeah. was saying that uh, he do- he doesn't support the monarchy, but he does support the spectacle. He's like it's a once in a generation thing. He goes and I like to he goes I like to see something like that because I'll never get to see it again. You're supporting the monarchy by going, Nick. You fucking bell end. That's what he's saying. You could have watched the spectacle of it at home on the telly, like some people did. That you can enjoy the spectacle that way. I it's like. Uh, I like how Joe Biden sent his wife, but he didn't go. Yeah, I like that too because he hates uh, <laughs> British people. That's why. If it had <laughs> happened in Ireland, he would have fucking been there with bells on. I think he's too old to walk up the stairs to get onto the jet. You know, so I think he's he just like, just let my wife less. go. Um, you know, I didn't notice this, but I was I was curious. So Prince Harry went without Meghan. So she she and Joe Biden are hanging out in the States, but Prince Harry ended up going. Did he stand next to everyone else? Because I thought they all hate him. I don't know, because I didn't watch it. I've been actively avoiding it. Uh, and I've been trying not to talk about it because it riles me. Well, so I'm wondering know. if maybe people, uh, you know, listeners, English listeners, let let me know what happened. I was I was wondering like if, uh, yeah, where where Harry was standing. But Not one me, thing I that that did pique my interest here about uh, about this whole event, the whole ceremony, the coronation, was I imagine like security must have been out like tenfold because they're they're trying to prevent any kind of terrorist action. Well, earlier this week. There's a guy who was arrested outside Buckingham Palace for throwing shotgun cartridges onto the palace grounds. Love that for him. Good for him. It's kind of <laughs> like, remember when um, Kirk Bain had killed himself and then Courtney Love was playing like a festival a couple of months later and somebody threw a shotgun shell on and she fucking dove into the crowd and started beating the shit out of the person who chucked it on. It's like, but what was this guy's end game here? What was his goal? Was to freak people out? It's threatening them, which I agree with. The royal family need to be threatened, and they need to. The people have the power at the end of the day. Look at France, is all I'm going to (laughs) say. Revolution, people. It is time. I mean, it's it's a little late for that. I mean, you think you guys would have had it years ago, but hey, you know why not? Brits are too polite. Too polite. You guys are sheep following the orders of your king. No. 
<laughs> I say just, rise up. Throw his tea in the ocean. Kick him out of the palace. Tarn I feather agree. him. I agree with all of that, and it should happen. But the Brits are just too polite, and we just like want a quiet life where we can sit in our gardens and drink our cups of tea and, you know, listen to the birds tweet, blah, 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 while we forget about how this society is crumbling around us. Very British. But so this guy walks over there and just chucks a bunch of uh, shotgun cartridges. He wasn't carrying a gun. Police obviously arrested him immediately, but they found that he had a knife. And then, as they were searching his bag, he was like, "Be careful! There's a there's a controlled explosion. You know, there might be a or they had to do a controlled explosion over it because he was like, "Be careful! Be very careful with the bag." Makes me wonder what was he carrying? I don't know. Probably nothing. He was probably just a mentalist. It was like, well, be careful. Be ca- got well, booze in there, boys. The suspected cartridges have been recovered and they're being examined. But since this, since this happened earlier in the week, they're like, oh, okay, you know, the police response was fantastic to this, and we will have a huge security operation in place for the coronation. Well, I don't know if you saw that video online today, but some Asian guy was trying to go to the pharmacy, just walked right by uh, William and Kate. Just, I mean, practically bumped into him. Had no idea who they were. Walked right by. It was like, wow, that security is fantastic. <laughs> like if that dude, if that dude was wearing like a bomb vest, he could have blown both of them up. He could have stabbed one of them. He just wanted his prescription from the pharmacy. I feel bad for him. Bless him. He's like probably not feeling well. well yeah, I don't feel. And he was an older Asian gentleman. I, I, I don't see anything. You know, I don't have any problem with him. But I'm just saying, what a crack security team you got there. <laughs> like if you just you had some dude it. throw a bunch of uh, shotgun cartridges over the wall and you had to like blow up his bag and now you're just letting this guy just walk right by the prince and his wife. Why not? It's, it's, it's a bit ridiculous. So anyway, I was just wondering it's if there would be some terrorist type shenanigans at the coronation this weekend because it does seem like the perfect opportunity, you know, for this type I of was a, a statement to be made. Yeah, I was hoping for a Godfather free opera house steps scenario. But Ooh. instead of like, obviously, Charlie would be Al Pacino, but instead of being Al Pacino, they're both Sophia and they die. That would have been amazing. Ooh, that would have been a nice. Of bullets. Great. Or something. You know, I, I just expected something to happen. But, you know, I think if this, if an event like this like occurred in the US, there would be a terrorist act, a homegrown terrorist act. I would hope so. Because you guys have the balls to do it. We, we also have the guns. The We're armed to our teeth, and and we have meth. I, I yes. guaranteed. And we we full we fully buy into conspiracy theories. Like we don't even question them in the U.S. We're like, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, but there's no validation for that. You know, it's not even from a reputable media source. Doesn't matter. It's I what believe I believe, it. boy. Yeah, let me go get my AK. Like it, that. That's the <laughs> thing, and this would definitely happen here. And I think that's that's kind of evident. With all the militant cults that we've had in the past in this country, uh, in particular the one that we're going to talk about in this week's episode, uh, the Christian militant cult, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, in which uh, Timothy McVeigh um, had a connection. So uh, we're going to get into that in, in one second. Uh, but first, Let's chat about the sick and wrong patron. People, we need you to support indie podcasting. And, you know, I know you guys listen to the bigger podcasts with the Joe Rogans and the celebrities and the, you know, the Sarah Silvermans. But there's other people out there you know, doing it week in, week out. And we don't, we're not even backed by a network. We're not backed by, you know, Wondery. 
you know, we're just uh, indie DIY podcrafters, you know, that go out every week and, uh, you know, put on a little show. It's all word of mouth. And the only support that we get is from, uh, you know, listeners, people, people like you that love the show that sign up for the Sick Round Patron and support us every people. week. Power to the people is what I'm saying. We're not a monarchy here. You know, we're, we're, we're all uh, very diplomatic, you know, it's egalitarian. Um, so for only a few bucks a month, you can access the, uh, the Sick and Wrong second show. Uh, this week we chat about uh, uh, Kay Rambo coming here, coming here to the U.S., making plans for that. Are you excited about your, uh, your upcoming journey? I am absolutely excited. I have been over-exercising. I've been, like, I've been going ham for it because I am just going to pig out for two weeks. I'm going to go for it. We also talk about, uh, I was, um, last week I went to Seal Beach to hang out m- with my sister and Ozzy, and I bought him an incredible Hulk, a little doll that says, like, Hulk smash, scared the living shit out of this kid. Like, I, really, like, he wouldn't even come into the room around You'd this You'd think thing. it would remind him of Jeffrey. Yeah, you know, you'd think he, I mean, Jeffrey's kind of green, but he's not all big and muscular, but he does have the same well, type big. of temperament. He has the same temperament, <laughs> you know? Uh, we also talk about a, uh, a hilarious story that uh, JoJo told me. You know, it's his birthday today. So we're, we're going to get into all that on the second Happy show. Happy birthday, show JoJo! second show is a lot more personal, a lot more saucy than the main show. The main show is all about business. Second show is, uh, you know, is the party in the back. It's the mullet of uh, podcasting. Yeah, it is. So five bucks a month, sign up for the Sick and Wrong Patron, get access to the second show. Uh, we also have a second show on Apple Podcasts now, so you can just go right through your podcast app and subscribe to the second show that way as well. For a few dollars more, you get access to the Sick and Wrong Overkill. Uh, this week, Kay Rambo put a special serial killer star sign Taurus uh, episode all about Timothy McVeigh. I had no idea he was a Taurus. Yeah, he's kind of, and I go deep into his chart as well. So I've been kind of like touching upon like what the astrology, like, because you can go very deep. It basically becomes numerology at a certain point, And I'm getting into that now. So all the, all the girlies who love astrology, who want to learn more, it's good. I actually have a lot in common with Timothy McVeigh because I've got hmm. my moon in Pisces and so does he. We also like uh, the mint chocolate chip ice cream too. I love mint chocolate chip ice cream, and it's a highly underrated flavor because I do want to eat an ice cream that tastes like toothpaste. Also on the Patreon, did you do a killer cooking episode about Timothy McVeigh's last meal? You and me both did that, and that's on the Patreon as well. Yeah. Um, and also at the, uh, the $10 a month level, you get access to the Sick and Wrong archives, the first 10 years of Sick and Wrong available on SoundCloud playlists. All that and more on the Patreon. So, uh, yeah, help us keep this show going. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. So let me play this quick promo. And, uh, yeah, let's chat about the, uh, the militant Christian cult, the covenant, the sword, and the arm of the Lord. Greetings, loyal subjects in the UK and in the colonies. I love the sick and wrong Patreon. It gives me news stories, extra phone calls, and lots of tips on how to deal with my son Andrew, the sweaty nonce. Anybody found in the UK or the colonies not subscribed to the Patreon will face beheading. Thank you. In the early 1980s, the criminal activities of a secret collective of a paramilitary survivalist uh, full of tax protesters, bankrupt farmers, skinheads and ex-convicts were motivated by an extreme 
right-wing political ideology. Rather than maintaining the status quo or influencing government policies, their sole objective was mass murder. They would assassinate federal officials, politicians, police officers, and, yeah, Jews. Always the Jews. They always go for the Jews. They do. They were going to sabotage gas pipelines, blow up electric power grids, and they're going to derail passenger trains. They would rob banks, armored trucks, and military uh, installations. They would burn churches and synagogues. They would attempt to poison municipal waste supplies with chemical agents. And they're going to bomb federal buildings too, including the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. God, they're like uh, Cobra and uh, G.I. Joe, just an evil, evil group of people. Cobra. Cobra was cool. My favorite G.I. Joe was Snake Eyes, though. Well, he was like a ninja, but he was he he was yeah he was he was a good character, right? He wasn't like or did he was he kind of like mixed? Was he like I think he was on the fence, neutral? but I remember him. He looked a bit like Eric Cantona. I don't know who that is, but I'll take your word for it. He did, and he does. This story all begins with a racist terrorist organization. And- just like D said, called the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, the C- or the CSA, which also handily means the Confederate States of America. And it begins with a member called Richard Wayne Snell. Richard Wayne Snell's last words before he was executed, which he addressed to the then governor of Arkansas, Guy Tucker, were, well, I had a lot to say, but you have me in an inconvenience. My mind is blurred, but I'm going to say a couple of words, Governor Tucker. Look over your shoulder. Justice is coming. Justice is coming. I wouldn't trade places with you or any of your cronies. Hell has victories. I am at peace. Pretty yeah, cool last words. Yeah, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> yeah, here, have peace with that. <laughs> yeah. I love the word cronies as well, and I feel it isn't said enough. I'm going to start. I'm going to bring back the word cronies this week. It's like something Skeletor would say. I do like that as well. Yeah. And what, what the hell? What a great name for the governor of Arkansas. Guy Tucker. It's so hey, American. Nice <laughs> so American. You. I'm Guy Tucker. <laughs> Vote for me, Guy Tucker. He died by lethal ejection in the Cummings Unit in the Arkansas Department of Corrections at the age of 64 on April the 19th, 1995, a date now famous in American history. The year before was Waco, and at 9.02 a.m. in the morning, 168 people, 19 of them children, would die in the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City, carried out by Timothy McVeigh, with a little bit of help from his friends, and Richard Wayne Snell was probably his biggest inspiration for carrying out the attack, even more influential than Waco or Ruby Ridge. Richard was born the son of a preacher man on May the 21st, 1930 in Iowa. His father was a pastor in the Church of Nazarene, and Richard, or Dick, can we call him Dick? He followed in his footsteps into the ministry, but he's never going to fully pursue the God life. His youth is kind of unknown. This is entirely by his design, uh, but from a young age, he was an active participant in a number of extreme right-wing organizations, one of them being the white supremacist group led by Texan polygamist James Ellison, which is the Covenant of Sword and the Arm of the Lord, which was started in 1971 in Elijah, Missouri. So in 19... 
1970, when James Ellison was a fundamentalist minister in San Antonio, he claimed that he received a directive from God. They always do, don't they? And he's got to go to Arkansas. He's going to establish a refuge where he would Jim Jones it. And he's going to invite spiritualists, drug addicts, and ex-convicts to come and join him in his cause. Well, it's a little easier to convince those people. But I wonder why he chose Arkansas of all places. I don't know. What's in Arkansas? Nothing. I guess maybe because it's rural and it's probably easy to have a militant faction there. No one's going to fuck with you. It's not technically Bible Belt, but it's on the fringes, on the borders. Yeah, well, these people are Bible Belt people. He had been mentored by Richard uh, Gernt Butler, and he's the founder of the Aryan Nation alongside the founder of the Mountain Church, a man called Robert E. Miles. By 1976, he had squeezed enough money from all of his followers to buy a 220-acre farm from the Campus Crusade for Christ in a Bull Shoals Lake in Arkansas. You know, interesting thing about Gernt, Richard Gernt Butler. <laughs> I know, it's if, a, you, you want to say Grant, don't you? But it's Gernt. I, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, was it Steve Martin had a bit when someone was asking him, like whenever they ask him for a name, like, you know, if he goes to like a, a store and he has to like leave his name or get orders of pizza, he's like, <laughs> Gernt Blanson. <laughs> it's like, I don't know where he pulled that out of. But as soon as I read this, I was like, wow, this guy should go by Gernt than Richard. I'd be like, Gernt, Gernt Butler. But the interesting thing about Butler, albeit, you know, I mean, despite the fact that he's a, a, a uh, passionate a racist <laughs> and anti-Semite, but he was an aeronautical engineer and a co-inventor of the rapid repair of tubeless tires. Whatever they are, I'll well, take no, your like word that, for it. That was a huge difference. Like, I mean, that changed the way we have tires. Like, you didn't need a tube and a tire anymore. You, you could just, you know, have the, the shell of the tire, fill it up with air. But... This guy was a co-inventor of that. So, I mean, he was an intelligent man, yet he yeah. was filled with hatred. He was also a member of the Silver Shirts, which mm-hmm. is an American fascist organization modeled on the Nazi Brown Shirts, which was active until its suppression following the, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Robert Miller, he, uh, or Miller, however you want, Miller, Miller. He's the founder of Elohim City in Oklahoma, which is also linked to the Brotherhood. Also uh, mentored uh, James Ellison spiritually. It was a rural extremist group's wet dream town. They have about 12 structures. Some of them are like little homes. They have a church hall where all the residents meet every morning. Don't they have like dome, trailers and dome housing there too? I saw a picture of it. Yeah, in Elohim. I'm not actually sure how... I couldn't find any pictures of uh, James Ellison's town. But he names his community, and I am gonna. You're probably gonna have to step in here because this is a Bible word. Uh, Zarephath. Yeah, Zara, it's actually Zarephath Horeb. Oh, so close. Yeah, Zarephath okay. Horeb dash Horeb. It's a biblical name. And that's the city to which God ordered Elijah to move to for testing. As if I will know any of that. This isn't gonna last though. The group isolated itself from culture. This is how you become a cult. They adopted the CSA name uh, with there being like about uh, 70 hardcore acolytes at the time who remained true to the group. So the name Zarephath Horeb is the city which God ordered Elijah to uh, move to for his testing. But um, Mount Horeb was the mountain to which Moses moved the Hebrews during the exodus from Egypt. And then Zarephath is the city to which God ordered Elijah to move in and undergo a crucible for his faith. I would so never test his faith, yeah. 
Um, the isolated portion of the state, so that's why the, he chose Arkansas, uh, was perfect for Ellison because it's, um, you know, it had a predominantly white population, secluded in a rural terrain that makes monitoring by law enforcement agencies kind of difficult, and it's positioned on the border between two states, which complicated jurisdictional responsibilities. So oh, I think right. you, that's probably yeah. the main reason then. So you could go, go they had different state laws on each side yeah. of the border there. And then it'll be a case of if you do something naughty, whose sheriff's uh, deputies are going to come in to get you. It's or like who wants to deal, want with, to deal it. with it. Yeah. Clever. So the name basically means the covenant is basically meaning the covenant that God made with the Jews. What is it the rabbi said about uh, brisses? It's a covenant with God. Yeah, well, the Jews had many covenants with God, but there was that is one of them. Cut the tip of your dicks off. It's a covenant with God. The sword represents God's anger against those who do not obey his commandments. And the arm of the Lord is a God, not God's dick. It is uh, omnipotence. <laughs> Unlike other quirky religious cults, their main purpose was to start a war that would lead to the second coming of Christ for some reason. And the members of the group believed that they were literally God's chosen people. And as such, they had divine right on this planet to, you know, kill to start the end of days. Well, I think, you know, it has Christian identity movement written all over this. I know we talked about this a few episodes back with the whole uh, KKK Kardashian thing. But the central precept of the Christian identity movement is that white people are the real chosen people of God. Not those Jews, not the Semitic people, you know, from the Middle East. It's white people. Anglo-Saxon white people are God's real chosen people. James Ellison preached and taught that there's going to be great tribulation. There's going to be fires, famine, earthquakes, pestilence. Parents would eat their own children to survive. Those from the cities are going to invade the countryside looking for food and shelter, and millions would die. But their mission is to establish an ark for God's people. And yeah, he means the whites as a (laughs) refuge for this upcoming war. It's very Manson-esque. It's like racist Noah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the CSA was a doomsday cult. I mean, they thought doomsday was imminent and the group believed in, uh, you know, full on white supremacy and uh, they're very anti-Semitic. And like other prominent anti-Semitic groups, um, they believed in all the anti-Semitic tropes and uh, they they called the United States government Zog, (laughs) which I know we've used that term here on the show, but that that is short for Zionist occupied government because the Jews have infiltrated all levels of the government and they're the ones that use our politicians like puppets. I don't know if you're aware of that, K Rambo. Well, uh, you do have the space lasers. Come on. We do. Daily life inside uh, Zarafraf was highly regimented by Ellison and he had six elders who helped him run the place. Smoking, drinking, swearing, you can do none of that. So it's already boring. <sighs> boring. Work is mandatory and all material property, like including your wedding rings, family heirlooms, maybe your porcelain zoo, they're turned over to the body or the organization as a whole. So, you know, there's a Mm. bit of socialism here. Typical cult. In prayer services, Ellison used the scriptures to warn his flock about America's imminent social and economic decline. And because of this, he asserted that Christians must develop their capacity to survive. It was under the watchful eye of the FBI because, like what Richard Gurnt 
preached. Ellison also taught a form of Christian identity, which we did. We talked about in the KKK and the Kardashian episodes. And surprise, surprise, Ellison and the CSA had very close ties to the KKK and the Northern Idaho-based group of the Aryan Nations, which is under the leadership of uh, Gernt here. It, it seems like they all, like, all the They're people linked. kind of tangentially associated with, uh, with the uh, CSA, they all had their own little clubs. Like their own yeah, little racist Nazi clubs. clubs. Yeah. Yeah. So the CSA would prepare for the impending doomsday by becoming survivalists. They're going to engage in paramilitary training. They're storing food and supplies, raising their own farm, living off grid. Oh, and uh, stockpiling weapons, including military weapons that they bought and sold at gun shows under a lot of fake names, by the way. The town was also self-sufficient. They had a sawmill and they also had a salvage business too. And this makes sense when you're possibly making your own weapons, doesn't it? You're going to have a lot of salvage leftovers. They also Jim Jones it. And they had a stash of cyanide handy, but it wasn't for them. It was to be used in urban reservoirs come judgment time. And yes, I do know it was flavor aid. Please nobody write in. Of course, I know it was fucking flavor aid. I like how they're like dumping like a bucket of cyanide into uh you know, the reservoir, water. everyone's drinking water, and they're like, this is God's hand of judgment right here. <laughs> He's leading me to dump the cyanide. God told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. They also operated their End Time Overcomer Survival Training School, which offered instructions in urban warfare, weapons use, and military tactics. But they also modeled this after the FBI training center at Quantico, uh, Virginia, but they called it Silhouette City. I do like the way they're naming shit. I've got to give them that. Silhouette City is actually kind of cool. It'd make a great t-shirt. I find it really funny that they had their, you know, their end time overcomer survival training school. So, you know, Doomsday comes and these are the, the, the people that overcome it, the people that won't let you drink, they won't let you smoke, they won't let you Ugh. swear. You got to go deal with like, yeah, every up. week yeah. you got to go deal with churchy, you know, church time. I'd be every like, just, day, just, just kill me with everybody else, <laughs> with all the sinners. I just don't want to deal with you fuckers. Um, I'll um, take the cyanide water, please. Yeah, I'll take a, a double. Um, <laughs> Silhouette City was a 224 acre property in Bull Shoals Lake in Marion County, Arkansas. Um, and the CSA operated there from its, until its collapse in 85, 1985, but it was purchased by Ellison originally from the Campus Crusade for Christ in 1976. So there's been like this history of Christian groups yeah. that, that have been active in this area. I don't think the Campus Crusade for Christ, you know, were making their own weapons and stockpiling like, you know, buckets of cyanide, but they probably also agreed with the end time, the second coming of Christ. They probably did. So after it's up and running, they began targeting local and federal agents and CSA agents would monitor their homes and they're going to practice mock assassinations of their targets with rifles and mock attacks inside of Silhouette Because that's very Christian to do oh, mock totally. assassinations. Um, so within the within Silhouette City, love saying that, uh, the group trained an estimated 1,500 like-minded Christian identity adherents in combat techniques, paramilitary exercises, um, assassinations, and things like that. But this is most hilarious. So the facility used targets that were crudely caricatured blacks, Jews, and police officers who wore the Star of David instead of badges. So instead of having their badges, they just had Jewish stars. 
um, which would I have would been love amazing. To see what they looked like. Well, I, I, you know, I was trying to do a search to find out if it was like you know the the classic Nazi caricature of the That's Jew with thinking. his yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's with like his gold. Well, you know, I was just thinking like in Quantico when they're walking through like you know the training ground and it's, it's like the the cardboard pop targets pop up and it's just this <laughs> Jew just ah, where's my gold. You know, and they're like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so after they complete their training, the newly trained militants would then leave and join the various militia groups, which are similar to the CSA. And then eventually they would found their own militia group. So I think a lot of these people that grew up in this community, this Christian, quote unquote, community, are just like, one day I'm going to have my own white supremacist group and I'm going to go out and kill Jews and train people to kill Jews. And that's like their purpose. That's their raison d'etre. This was life before the internet and before yeah. Netflix. I mean, it, it wasn't much to do back then. In 1983, the die was cast when Ellison and Snell, they first met at a CSA conference where Ellison delivered the closing speech at the Aryan World Congress. So this is an annual summer uh, conference. And should I say this next bit? Should I say it? Or should I just like, should I say the nice way to say it? Because this is this is still what they call it to this day. It's an annual summer conference. A ninja and ninja shoot? It's a ninja shoot. This yeah, is what these terrible. people call it. Not surprised. And he announced that the death of tax protester Gordon Carl at the hands of the FBI, this was their call to arms. And this is music to Snell's racist ears. Since so moving to the, I am going to say this wrong, Auchicha? Auchicha. Wachicha. Oh, this is all like um, Indian words. That I'm yeah, Wachita. Like, Wachita. That's such like a, an Indian word. In a, see, there you go. I'm trying not to be like a racist to the first half, and now I'm just calling them Indians. They don't like that, do they? Native American. There we go. I've redeemed myself. Since he moved to those mountains in southeast Oklahoma in 1982, apparently because he feared nationwide race riots, he continued to live a life of mystery and pursuit both real and imagined. He was very well known to the FBI and other law officials in Oklahoma and Texas because Richard and his wife were wanted for a string of outstanding felony warrants, failed bank loans, and you know, their habit of stockpiling explosives and illegal weapons. Richard Snell was a very active member of the CSA, albeit he was an outsider. He was also in the Aryan Brotherhood. He's a crackpot conspiracy theorist like the rest of the members. His main project was in the group was filming planes that landed at Mina International Municipal Airport in Mina, Polk County, which I know from the Elvis song. <sighs> they believed that the CIA was using the airport to smuggle drugs and thought that the local and state po political forces were involved in covering this up, which actually kind of isn't far from the truth. You've got to give it to them here because Mina in the 80s and the 90s was caught up in a drug smuggling scandal because of the Iran-Contra affair. And then I fell into like an hour long, just yeah, like Wikipedia wormhole reading about all of this. And, uh, you know, obviously old listeners to this show will just remember it. It'll be like it was probably part of your childhood. Yeah, Ali North. He was all wrapped up in that. I think he was in, involved even in uh, Mina. But, you know, it, it is interesting. It, it's not that far of the truth. This is a conspiracy that actually is kind of grounded in reality. But just a quick summary. The Sandinistas overthrew Nicaraguan President Anastasio Somoza de Bale in 79, which ended a 46-year dictatorship by the Somoza family. And so there were counter-revolutionaries known as the Contras that were battling the, battling the Sandinistas. And the U.S., was covertly backing the Contras. 
So mm-hmm. during that period, like late 70s, 81 to 85, the MENA airport was a major transit point for the entrance of cocaine and heroin to the U.S. And so the estimated value of narcotics that were smuggled through this facility was like three, three to five billion dollars. So they were definitely moving a lot of drugs back then. And that's 1980s money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And so for a portion of this time, uh, the alleged ringleader of this drug smuggling appeared to have been working with the CIA and the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. And so the goal was to expose the involvement of the Nicaraguan Sandinista regime as a major supplier of cocaine from Colombia. So they were trying to vilify the Sandinistas by allowing drugs to come into the U.S. So they were definitely condoning the drug trade, but yet using it for their own means. CIA and the DEA, extremely shady. So Snell was involved in the filming of planes that landed at the, uh, at the airport. And uh, he, and along with a lot of conspiracy theorists, thought this was, you know, we're going to prove this is a government-sanctioned operation of the, of the CIA to smuggle drugs into the U.S. And so he claimed that law enforcement agencies, state and, uh, you know, federal, state, and then the, those in the local uh, western Arkansas were all involved with this cover-up. And so that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to prove it. And he claims that he had filmed the then governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, at Ooh. the airport. Yeah. With, you know, with the, uh, the the drug smugglers. But that claim has never been proven. And there's never been video evidence of, uh, you know, associating Bill with that airport. Oh, I reckon Bill liked to toot now and then, don't you think? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's a shagger and you need some fucking toot if you're going to keep shagging. I'm sure he's delivered his his fair share of booty bumps. Oh, yeah. As the 80s rolled in, Ellison, you know, becomes drunk with power, and he now declares himself King James of the Ozarks. And the CSA issued a declaration of non-surrender, and they began a series of violent acts that would lead to multiple arrests and long-term hatred. The declaration of non-surrender was inspired by Bible verses, and as such was believed to be the word of God, you know how you do it. So you would have faith that Jesus Christ is the son of God, faith that the white race is the Israel race of God and the superior one on this earth, belief that God is actively saving a remnant of the white nations or the tribes of Israel, and faith that God is about to visit a wrathful judgment on earth in these very last days. By 1984, they had also released their Attack Manifesto which stands for Aryan Tactical Treaty for the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom. They're they're really good at naming shit. Yeah, who comes up with these acronyms? These are great. They're great. And this is where they stated that every action of the enemy shall be met with equal and opposition reaction, and we shall attack and advance into enemy territory within the next two years. Be prepared. (laughs) I love it. This led to Snell and other members of the CSA being arrested and indicted for conspiracy to overthrow the government. This only fueled Richard's anti-government art, like IRA, and in particular the IRS, whom had raided his home on like multiple occasions. I imagine the government, you know, had Richard on their list and definitely fucked with him whenever they could. I yeah, doubt the he's guy. fucking with them. But I doubt he willingly paid his taxes every year. Of course they don't. None of them do. <laughs> 
It was around this time that he claimed that an Arkansas state trooper sent um, on secret government governor's duty had beaten Snell's wife, Mary Jo, in front of their three children to try and get her to pony up info about where the secretly filmed footage was kept. Yeah, so this is the thing. He, was, he claims that uh, he had footage of Bill Clinton... And then his wife knew where the secret footage was. And so that he said that the Arkansas State Troopers that were assigned to Clinton's security team were the ones that, that came into his house and beat up his wife trying to find the, uh, the video. Who knows if it's true? Although I doubt they're going to beat up his wife. Mary Jo uh, is also, I'm putting this out there, Mary Jo is a fat, fat woman's name, isn't it? And definitely a redneck name. The ATF were also interested in Richard and his CSA pals, and they also had ongoing investigations. So during one raid of the compound in 1984, they found, and they claimed, 155 Krugerrands, which are gold coins. One, uh, they also found one ready-to-fire live anti-tank rocket, 94 long guns, 30 handguns, 35 sawn-off shotguns, and machine guns, including a 303 caliber machine gun and a huge pile of C4 explosives. Much of this arsenal had been stolen. Like I said, they were trading at gun shows, but they all did it under fake names with fake credit cards. And stockpiling munitions. Yeah. So I did like a little bit of extra research into this because I wanted to compare this to Waco. So after Waco, after the fire had been quenched, there were around 300 machine guns, assault rifles, pistols, and grenades found in the charred remains. So kind of like when you think about it, there was way more people at Waco. So there's going to be more guns. So for the amount of guns that they found at the CSA, it's like a lot. Yeah, but... The CSA also had more of a variety. I mean, they had C4 explosives, oh, yeah. sawed-off shotguns, you know, handguns, long guns, an anti-tank rocket. I mean, and Waco didn't have all this. No, but also you've, Waco was using their weapons for the standoff. Oh, yeah. So they probably had more, but there was more people at Waco. For the amount of people that are in the CSA, about 70 people, this is an insane amount of guns, especially considering yeah. a lot of them is per stolen. Capita. And yeah, Waco, they were manufacturing their own guns as well, and I'm sure they were here. By this time, uh, Richard was kind of distancing himself from the group. He's still an active member, but he's kind of more like a lone operative rather than someone who has subscribed to what the King of the Ozarks is teaching. And he used the CSA as, a, as his base of operations. So he's probably storing his weapons there too. In 1983, along with other CSA members, William Thomas and Stephen Scott, they attempted to dynamite a natural gas pipeline near Fulton, Arkansas, but it didn't go boom. Stephen Scott was captured and he's convicted for the crime. And in his cozy federal cell, he spilled the beans. He became a stool pigeon. He's fingering his fellow racist on their activities to the feds. And now the authorities were primed for capturing all the rest of the CSA devils. Oh, he's a snitch. Of course, they always go snitch, don't they? Snell's downfall and the beginning of the end for the CSA would begin on June the 30th, 1984. Richard Snell, he fled across state lines into Oklahoma after he killed Arkansas State Trooper Lewis Bryant, who became the first African-American Arkansas Highway Patrolman to die in the line of duty. There's an honor. 
<laughs> that no one wants. <laughs> a truck driver had witnessed the murder and he followed Richard and he contacted the Broken Bow Police Department in Oklahoma and they set up a roadblock to stop the van that was pulling a trailer. When officers managed to intercept the van, Snell jumped out. He's firing a submachine gun. He's got a 45 caliber pistol that was also stolen. He's just shooting at the pigs. During this shootout, he was wounded at least half a dozen times in his abdomen, knee and ankle. But he obviously survives. He's taken to hospital and his van and trailer are being searched. Then the bomb squad is called in because they saw just like tons of electronical devices inside his trailer. And once the scene's clear, they find hand grenades, silencer-equipped firearms, survivalist literature, a shit-slash-hit list that included reporters for the Jerusalem Post, and a gun that was then linked to another murder. <laughs> was he an avid reader of the Jerusalem Post and just, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, just circling all the names? Yeah, he did. And I found a really good article written by a former reporter for the Jerusalem's Post whose name was on his shit list. So he, Richard Snell was coming for that dude. Snell had killed pawn shop owner William Stump in Arkansas on no November 3rd, 1983. He had killed him because he thought Stump was Jewish, although to me Stump isn't a Jewish name. Yeah, I was about to Stump say, it's isn't. like the least Jewish surname I've ever heard. That's like very German. It was it, yeah. German, Stump. A Stump. Yeah. yeah, Stump. Obviously, Stump isn't, but his death would kind of steal his uh, fate. At the end of his very open and shut trial, he's going to serve life for the murder of Trooper Bryant. Uh, Snell, by the way, also incidentally caused the death of four other troopers who were in a fatal car wreck when they were on their way to Bryant's funeral. That's terrible. Sucks. Yeah. But he's going to receive death for the murder of William Stump. From his prison cell in Havana, uh, Arkansas, he began publishing a periodic newsletter called The Seekers, which told the, of the war to establish righteousness, a war in which he considered himself a POW. I, I don't even understand how that can happen. Like, how was he printing the newsletter? How was he distributing it? Like, logistically, it doesn't make sense to be able to do that from a prison cell. I do... I know, like, the laws have obviously changed, and this is way back then, but you do get a bit more, like, leniency on death row. They are even... I'm not saying this from, like, a Damien Eccles point of view, but in certain places you get a bit more leniency because, like, you usually anyway. don't cause any trouble. Yeah. Where else can you go? Yeah, but you think you'd be causing more trouble because you're going to be put to death. Maybe, but, yeah, I know it's all different, but maybe at this time they just didn't care. The militia of Montana, they rallied to Richard Snell's cause in the March issue of its publication, which was called Taking Aim, and it reminded its readers that his execution would be set for April the 19th. If the date does not ring a bell for you, then maybe this will jog your memory, the newsletter said. 1st of April, 19th, 1775, the Lexington burned. 2nd of April, 19th, <laughs> like two, sorry, 1943, Warsaw burned. Three, April the 19th, 1992. The feds attempted to raid Randy Weaver, but they had their plans thwarted when concerned citizens arrived on the scene with supplies for the Weaver family, totally unaware of what was to take place. Fourth, April the 19th, 1993. The Branch Davidians burned. Five, April the 19th, 1995. Richard Snell will be executed unless we act now. So it is wow. a significant date. A lot of events occurred on that day. 
Before Richard faced the needle and the damage done, he watched the news reports about the city bombing and he was smiling, chuckling and noddling, nodding along to the news. Maybe his prediction that the bombing would carry out on his death date had finally come true. Maybe it also brought him joy because Richard Rain Wayne Snell was one of the original architects of the Oklahoma City bombing, albeit they took someone else's idea and they kind of fleshed it out. Well, you know, a lot of people don't know about that, but the Oklahoma City bombing was a, or the Oklahoma City building, the Murrah building in Oklahoma, has been a target for decades amongst these white supremacists. Yeah. You know, I, that's why I think I it's it. kind of like one of the it's one of their goals. Like, if it's like one day we're going to get the Murrah building. So I think a lot of people had aspirations to blow that place up. Yeah, Timothy McVeigh was by not the first. So we know that Turner Diaries, Waco, Ruby Ridge, they might have pushed McVeigh and his cronies way. Because there is actually still an unidentified bombing suspect out there. But on September the 28th, 1975, um, oh, I'm so sorry, Harawisi Rene Ma, should we go with that, Sounds was convicted. Good. Yeah, it's close enough. Was convicted by a jury of unlawfully attempting to damage and destroy the United States Federal Courthouse building in Oklahoma City using a bombing device. 1975. Oh, sorry, 1975. No, but yeah, so 1975. That was, that was the you know the first time they were thinking of bombing this this uh, courthouse. So the bomb had a fuse device which had been lit, but it did not explode. So it's like Columbine. This inspired the racist wannabe militia in 1983, where CSA members, including Richard Snell, planned to plant a truck bomb outside the Alfred P. Murrah building. In 1988, former CSA leader James Ellison turned a snitch, and he gave state's evidence and testified that CSA member Richard Wayne Snell and others had participated in this plot. Snell's totally bitter towards the government, Ellison claimed because the IRS and the FBI seized his property. So, of course, he's going to do it. But also, maybe Ellison had turned snitch because a huge raid on the CSA compound on April the 19th, 1985, basically was the death note for the group. Feds and the ATF were keen to capture the group after their plot to assassinate the FBI special agent Jack Knox, who's the lead agent on the case with the CSA. He's like their main enemy, and they're wanting to kill him. The ATF sent in 300 federal agents, but they posed them as fishermen into the compound with a warrant because it was like really close to like a fishing port. Ellison and Robert Miller quickly realized that they were outnumbered, they're outmanned, and they quickly negotiated a surrender. Uh, kind of what happened to your pact to go down there, Jimmy? They had a little small four day siege where nothing was fired and no one was hurt. Four days? Come on. Yeah, like, look they at had enough supplies like, to last longer than four days, for fuck's sake. I know pussies, right? And talk about like being anticlimactic. I mean, the FBI agents were expecting this is going to be a huge firefight, and they were planning for this. Um, but the negotiators convinced Ellison that the CSA would definitely lose if you know. Obviously, the FBI was was better armed. Um, apparently, the CSA was expecting to be relieved by other far right groups. And God. God's on their side, of course. So God they had God's and backing, something. and they had all the other groups. But no one showed up. None of the other groups showed up, and God was like, I don't even exist. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so uh, the group's morale kind of went down, and its willingness to resist arrest also seemed to drop. And so then uh, negotiators convinced Ellison, 
that uh, you know, let's just let's just cooperate peacefully with each other. And uh, they had his spiritual advisor, good old Miller, fly in, you know, all the way from uh, what the Elohim city, and uh, he yeah. came to the compound and was acting as kind of a liaison. And so uh, he convinced Ellison to stand down. They allowed the individual, they allowed Miller to enter the compound, and the FBI instructed him to call in every thirty minutes and report on how uh, negotiations were going. And so they, they ended up like, this is kind of how you negotiate a peaceful end to a conflict. Not like what happened in Waco, you know, with the Branch yeah. Davidians or, you know, Ruby Ridge. Um, what's interesting here, though, U.S. attorney and now current Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson, um, who successfully prosecuted Ellison's other members of the CSA, he was there during the siege and he put on an FBI flak jack and he entered the compound to join the negotiations. So he was actually instrumental into leading to a peaceful conclusion, you know, to the armed standoff. So I was kind of impressed with that because I'm not a fan, obviously, of Asa Hutchinson, although he's a outspoken critic of Trump and what and the current state of the Republican Party. Um, definitely not as popular as Trump. Um, but after after several calls during which, uh, you know, they wanted more more time and it was the morning of the fourth day of the siege. Uh, Arkansas State Police entered the compound and just escorted all of the remaining members out. No bloodshed. And women and children had been previously evacuated and and put in nearby hotels. So no murder, you know, no deaths, no bloodshed. You know, this is a peaceful, a peaceful end to, uh, you know, what could have been a very violent conflict. Yeah, which would have been like Waco before Waco and Ruby Ridge before Ruby Ridge, really. It could have been. Predated both, yeah. This event led to Ellison and most members of the CSA facing a slew of charges, including illegal weapon possessions, federal racketeering, numerous other weapons charges. And Ellison was going to be slapped with a maximum sentence of 20 years. God, it seems, it seems low, 20 it years. It is kind of low. I think you get like 120 for that. They have to prove it, though. And yeah, again, we went in court, so we don't know what evidence was ever presented. But that's what he got. But he was going to be released in seven years because the state wanted his information on R- Richard Wayne Snell. And he testified against six members of the Aryan nations and their founder at the time, uh, their leader at the time. Sorry. Upon his release, he's going to move to Robert Millar's Elaheim City, a.k.a. What, what pundits have called the Holiday Inn of Hate, <laughs> which is brilliant. I would open that hotel, the Hateful Holiday Inn. You know, I, I bet you it'd be popular now. Yeah, especially with goths. Goths would always be cool. It would all, everything yeah. would be black, all black everything. The and you, would, you, know, you wouldn't get good service. In fact, there wouldn't even be somebody. It's all like check in by yourself, check out by yourself. Yeah, and everyone's just really indifferent. I, I kind of like yeah. that. Like, uh, you know, black towels. Black towels, black bedding, black everything. Sisters of Mercy playing on the uh, PA. I like this. I like it too. Let's start it. One month after his arrival there, he married Robert's granddaughter, 26-year-old Angie, who's actually already pregnant with his child. These white racist guys are really classy. Uh, he didn't even have to buy her like a cocktail or a gun before he stuck it in her. She, she seems a little accepting. old for him. I figured, I figured they, they <laughs> start getting pregnant around like, what, early teens? She, this is probably her 10th kid. Oh. She, yeah. She's old hat by now. Now, two of the most powerful racists in all of Northern America, they're tied in blood. 
Apparently, Robert presented the King of the Ozarks with a sword that was embedded in a rock. The rock and the sword sit on display in Elheim City Sanctuary Building, and the only one ever allowed to remove the sword is James Ellison. Investigators quickly tied the links between Miller, Elheim City, and McVeigh, who had frequently stayed there, and it was also a place where Timmy had called uh, just weeks before the bombing. Elheim City is also where Richard Snell's remains are buried in a clearing in dense woods on the property. These men didn't get to carry out their plans of bombing the federal building because Richard Snell was planning to blow it up with a rocket launcher, uh, which was to be left in a trailer or a van near the federal building, and then they were going to fire it by remote control. But, you know, time makes fools of us all, and for reasons unknown, they never went through with their plans. I was reading one of the main reasons he didn't do it is because when they were practicing, um, a rocket launcher exploded, the rocket exploded in his hands. And he took that as a sign from God saying, you probably don't want to go with this whole plan with the rocket launcher. Go get a truck, get some fertilizer. It'd be a lot easier. Let's do it bigger. Yeah, yeah. do it bigger, boys. And now keep in mind, this is in 1983. So it was, you know, 12 years before uh, yeah. Timmy took charge. But it's like you said, maybe they knew that they could do something even bigger than just a poxy rocket launcher firing at a building. You know, like packing a van with a powerful bomb made out of a deadly cocktail of agricultural fertilizer, diesel fuel, and numerous other easily flammable and dangerous chemicals. Now, that's what God would have done. And that's what God did, if you believe in him. (laughs) Kerry Noble, a former CSA member and now outspoken activist against the right-wing militia, said that he knew the right-wing had done the bombing. It was one of the targets that we had talked about in the CSA in 83. The day it happened, as soon as I heard it on the news, I said, the right-wing's done it. They finally took the step. Noble explained that the Murrah building was a target because it was a low security complex that housed many different federal agencies. He said the plotters thought it would have more effect on the country than if you did a building than, say, in New York or somewhere. What, what about the Twin Towers? I think that We're had a bit of an that. effect. We're um, going to get to that. But the Oklahoma bombing, you know, the city, Oklahoma City bombing occurred exactly on the 10th anniversary of the start of the siege of the CSA's compound in 1985, right. which yeah. is a weird link. You know, um, also, Richard Wayne Snell was executed on the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, and he had planned a similar attack in 1983 with the rocket launcher. Um, additionally, Snell was heard taunting jailers, as you said before, you know, saying that uh, people were, um, you know, something drastic was going to happen. And on, and on the day when he ha- found the news, he was, you know, in a, in a very jubilant mood. Um, however, McVeigh has stated clearly that he chose the date of April 19th because he wanted to perpetrate the Oklahoma City bombing on the second anniversary of the violent end of the Waco siege. Um, he also, you know, we, we said before, traveled to Waco uh, during the siege, was passing out flyers. Um, he was also, you know, he wanted to commemorate um, Ruby Ridge. And he said the events that occurred there also moved him to uh, perpetrate this bomb, this bombing. So it's all linked. It's oh, all definitely. Linked. And, I th- and I think this was also well planned, too. You know, yeah. I think uh, people in the Elohim City were well aware of Timothy McVeigh's intentions. I think this was like a target. This was like the dream target. The wet dream target of the far right was for some reason the Oklahoma City you know, uh, federal building. They all tried for it. Yeah. For decades. And McVeigh definitely didn't do this alone. Again, there is somebody no. associated with the bombing that has never been captured. And obviously his friend Terry Nichols that he did it with. 
So I think a lot of people helped Timmy to get to do what he did. Yeah, I don't think I think someone helped him, uh, you know, build the bomb, you know, come oh, yeah. up with the plan. I don't think this is a one person operation. He wasn't a lone wolf, put it that way. He most certainly wasn't. So the bomb was devastating. The surrounding area looked like a war zone. I mean, you can watch the footage of it on YouTube. A third of the building had been reduced to rubble with many floors flattened like pancakes, cement pancakes. Dozens of cars were incinerated and more than 300 nearby buildings were damaged or destroyed. The human toll was like, it was huge. 168 people died, including 19 children, several hundred more injured. And it was the worst act of homegrown terrorism in the nation's history until uh, McVeigh met his death at the wrong end of a short needle strapped to a gurney on the 11th of June, 2001. His last meal was two pints of mint chop chip ice cream. Like we said, we covered that on Killer Cooking. Also, um, I actually covered it in episode 475 of Sick and Wrong, where I interviewed uh, photographer Henry Hargreaves, who uh, captured the haunting images of Death Row's uh, Death Row inmates last meal requests in his No Second series. That guy's pretty cool, actually. If, yeah. Um, I still follow him on Instagram, and he still puts out these different, very you know, innovative series. So, but uh, yeah, that that cool. was very interesting. He has this really cool um, stage shot of the ice cream from above. A deadlocked jury spared his co-conspirator Terry Nichols a similar fate, and now he sits on a life sentence without parole in the Supermax Federal ADX Florent in Florence, Colorado. Robert Miller or Miller died on May 28, 2001, and his eldest son, John Millar, became the leader of Ellaheim City. Robert is buried near his buddy Richard Snell. Now John tries to downplay the negative aspects of life in Ellaheim, saying some of those who came to Ellaheim City may have had the false impression that it was a community of racists. It's not a false impression. You are a community of racists, man. <laughs> He said a more fitting description of the community would be white separatists. So you're racist. <laughs> Just racist. We're delighted we're white, he said. If you look honestly at world history in the last several thousand years, it's the white race that has produced civilizations that people want to be in. Yeah, because the Greeks and the Romans and the Vikings are all white, are they? Yeah, that's a, that's a racist statement in itself. <laughs> and it's also historically not fucking true. No. As for James Ellison, well, I thought he could be alive or dead because uh, I couldn't find out any information. I thought he had mysteriously vanished. But D did a deep dive into ye olde Google and you yeah. found out where James Ellison is. I found an article, well, he could be dead, but I found an article that was dated 2015 uh, that said two weeks after the Oklahoma City bombing, James Ellison, um, you know, former leader of the CSA, uh, ended up settling at Elohim City. And uh, he served several years in prison for weapons offenses and racketeering. And now he's in his mid-70s, and he's been at Elohim City for two decades. So he's still, if he's still alive, he's and this there. is 2015, he's, he's living there. Well, if not, they'll definitely bury him next to his buddy Richard uh, and uh, his other buddy. They'll all be there. Kerry Noble wrote in his book, Tabernacle of Hate, Seduction into Right-Wing Extremism, released in 1998, that the right wing are still in a state of war. They are trying to outdo each other. First you had Waco, and then you have Oklahoma City bombing. So what's going to come next? He wrote, 
I fear that we will have another domestic terrorist act in this country within the next five to seven years. One that will be of even greater impact than Oklahoma City. The result will be so extreme and so catastrophic that even many we know consider right wing may now denounce their action. Kerry was sort of right. Although it wasn't domestic, 9-11 would blow the bloody doors off Oklahoma and make McVeigh, Snell and the CSA a footnote in America's horribly racist history. But you have to heed a warning that comes straight from the jungles in Guyana. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, that is a thing. 9-11 definitely overshadowed anything that they did, you know, in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like on a whole other level. I mean, they must have been kind of jealous and somewhat impressed, I would say. A bit Um, Yeah. But the FBI, you know, it said that McVeigh's you know, was motivated by a desire to topple the U.S. government. Um, But in a media interview before he was executed, he described the white power movement, the members of the uh, CSA, as his brothers in arms. And so if you think about it, that era was kind of like the last time that the nation focused on right-wing extremism. Because after 2001, you know, the 9-11 attacks, all the attention was now overseas. You know, yeah, we were thinking of terrorists, you know, Middle East terrorists. We weren't even thinking about homegrown, you know, racial extremists. We weren't thinking yeah. of white power groups, you know, in our own state. I mean, we were thinking of uh, Allah Akbar and Al Qaeda, you know, and ISIS and things like that. And so radical forms of racism kind of remained masked for decades. And I'm talking homegrown racism until the presidential campaign of 2016 which stoked divisions, you know, inside America and hate crimes began to be on the rise again. I mean, if you think about it, um, in August 2017, when they had the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, I mean, that was kind of a wake up moment for a lot of people. Because I think a lot of people forgot about all these groups. I mean, we've just been thinking about terrorists. We've been thinking about Osama bin Laden. We've been thinking about Afghanistan, you know, or Iraq. You know, we just kind of forgot that, oh no, we got some some pretty crazy people on our own soil that are capable of being quite destructive. And so, yeah, sure enough, you know, Donald Trump kind of woke these guys up, um, you know, signed that little racist, you know, rang out that little racist dog whistle. And next thing you know, you got these dudes with their, their fucking lawn torches saying Jews will not replace us and marching, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and at that, that rally, I mean, a woman ended up being dead when someone like drove into her. So in the past few years, the FBI has arrested a few hundred Americans suspected of ties to domestic terrorism or violent white supremacy. You know, I was reading an interview with Kelvin Pierce, whose late father, Dr. William Luther Pierce, considered one of the pioneers of the modern white power movement. Um, he, he actually authored the Turner Diaries, his father. Oh, yeah. I really I've, was going to say I've never read the Turner Diaries. I don't think you can even buy it in this country. Like, but I would be kind of intrigued to read it just to see, like how how it goes from like naught to a hundred. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I'm a. I would think you could find that online because I mean I remember reading excerpts of it in college. A book like that, but I mean, considering that this type of stuff is like banned over here and like, well, it's supposed to be banned. I would probably have to buy it on the darkest of the webs. I couldn't buy it on eBay. So Kelvin Pierce here said that, uh, you know, Charlottesville rally 2017 showed that white supremacy was becoming mainstream again and that the monster has come out of uh, 
you know, hibernation. And then it, just to make matters worse, you had Trump infamously saying, well, there's fine people on both sides of the protests rather than condemning oh, the white supremacists, which he eventually did, but initially he did not. Um, so Pierce once adhered to his father's uh, ideologies, but now he speaks out against such hatred and is completely against what you know his, uh, his father was trying to, 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 to preach with the, the racist novel, The Turner Diaries, which portrayed a violent campaign against the federal government and a race war that ended up wiping out black Americans and Jews. Um, so what's interesting is the FBI, you know, in recent years has been spending considerable resources investigating these white supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups out there. One in particular called the Atomwaffen or atomic weapon in Germany. And they vowed to accelerate the collapse of civilization using violence, mass murder, and hate. Um, when authorities uh, raided the Tampa, Florida home of Atomwaffen founder, Brandon Russell, uh, they found explosives and a framed picture of McVeigh sitting right on his nightstand next to his bed. I mean, That's, they revere McVeigh and what he did. It's, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like how, you know, school shooters uh, like revere Eric and Dylan. And I wonder if like, because you can do that FBI graph of like the, all the school shooters that have been influenced by Eric and Dylan. You can see it on like the FBI site. So I wonder if it's the same for McVeigh in a way that they view him, even though McVeigh was just, I kind of think a patsy really. Like, I mean, he was just following orders. I don't think McVeigh had any fucking ideas of his own inside of his head. But he did achieve the bombing. He did achieve it, but I think it was highly suggested to him by other older men. You know, I think he he was was great at taking orders. Look at him in the army. And he was also a secret, a secret agent in the army too. He's great at taking orders, but not a fart going on in his little head. No, I I don't think so either. But I think he was definitely influenced by these right wing uh, ideologies, you know, in Elohim City and and whatnot. And people were talking to him about it, saying like, "Oh, we tried to blow up the Murrah Building. We tried." And he's like, "Yeah, he got a group together and was like, I'm going to succeed.'" where these other guys failed. And, it, you know, it's an inspiration to a lot of these, you know, young, you know, up-and-coming white supremacists. Yeah. Uh, another case, this is two years ago, the FBI searched the home of a 29-year-old in Boulder, Colorado, um, a man who uh, posted information online encouraging attacks on Jews and Muslims and federal government facilities. Um, in an interview with agents, uh, he said he wanted the white race to win at life. And inside his home, they found a full-size Nazi flag a T-shirt with McVeigh's face mm. and a book titled American Terrorist, Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City Bombing and a framed photo of Timothy McVeigh. That is a really good book, by the way. And just because you own that book, like I do, doesn't mean that you're going to go and blow up uh, like buildings. It's a very well, good not book. Yet. That book you also got man- banned in Walmart, you know. <laughs> wow, I'm surprised. Yeah. Um, and then in yet another case... Uh, FBI was investigating 18-year-old Richard Tobin of Brooklyn, New Jersey, who joined a white racially motivated extremist group and then directed others others around the country to vandalize synagogues in the Midwest with neo-Nazi symbols. Why is it always you know, the this was recent, but this is recent. I mean, it's not like this is new hatred for Jews, but there is definitely a trend towards now. I mean, uh, anti-Semitism is definitely on the rise. Racially motivated attacks are definitely on the rise in the past few years. And so when the FBI interviewed um, Tobin, uh, good old Richard Tobin here, um, he praised suicide bombing, saying he believed it would be pretty straightforward to fill the back of a truck with barrels of explosives, just like Timothy McVeigh did. 
And uh, when agents searched his computer, they found a document detailing how to arrange barrels inside the Ryder truck to be used as a truck bomb, truck bomb, just like McVeigh did. So, I mean, they're researching and trying to study McVeigh, you know, and, and the CSA's yeah. techniques. He's uh, a poster boy for them. Definitely. You know, um, and so since McVeigh's attack, that year, 1995, was the nation's most lethal year for domestic terrorism. Definitely. Fast forward, 2019 was the nation's second most lethal year for domestic terrorism. Wow. In 2019, domestic terrorists were responsible for 31 deaths, 23 linked to white supremacists. So, yeah, you know, I think when, uh, when someone, you know, when you, when you hear these people say, you know, or Kerry Noble say, I think we're probably due for another domestic terrorist attack. I think there's a lot of credence to that, especially where we're going right now. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months leading up to the next election. Definitely. You know, so. Watch out uh, for rider trucks, everyone. Rider yeah, trucks with young, white, and <laughs> skinhead boys driving them. Avoid them clear on the clear of rider trucks parked next to federal buildings, all right? That's what you <laughs> should do. Just avoid those completely. Uh, people, this is episode 893 here, Sick and Wrong. Uh, we got a couple phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. Uh, but first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. What do you do when you're at a family reunion or Thanksgiving? you got a raging boner that won't go away and you're considering fucking your grandmother. You go to Adam and Eve, of course. You buy a jerk-off sleeve, you know, build a pocket pussy, something of that nature, so you can go in the bathroom and just take care of that raging boner before you have to bend over your grandma at the table and just fuck her. So go to adamandeve.com and type in the code diddle. D-I-D-D-L-E That's what Grandpa used to do to your dad. Talk to you later. Bye. So we got a couple of phone calls to get to here. 323-522-4032 is the number of the Sick and Wrong hotline. Or you could email the show sickandwrongpodcast at uh, gmail.com uh, The first call Actually, it's a two-parter. It's just one call. But it's a two-part phone call from the atheist preacher who's calling huh. in about uh, uh, with a work story. And uh, I think you might recall that uh, the atheist preacher, his job now, he used to be a truck driver, but now he goes and fetches dead bodies. He's a picker-upper of the yeah. dead. He's a uh, cadaver cleaner. Hey there, Brother D, Sister Kate, and this is atheist preacher calling to regale you with a, another story from a job. For those that don't remember, I occasionally do on-scene work for the medical examiner, or at least that's where all the cool stories come from. Anyways, I get the call, you know, the address and everything. The guy's about 250 pounds in his house. Ooh. Not too bad, you know pretty run-of-the-mill i guess that's normal sized american it's when they're like 400 pounds or 500 pounds that's when it's when it gets tough yeah is that not when maybe firemen have to come in with like i don't know a special crane or 
Yeah. <laughs> they gotta like tear like they gotta like smash through the doorway. It's like dead weight. Well. Yeah, I mean because they're dead. L- yeah, literally, but you know, like sometimes you'll be fucking about with your mate and you'll pick your mate up and you'll be like, Oh, you're lighter when I than I fought. It's like not when they're dead, they're not. Do you ever have those thoughts when you're picking your mate up? How often do you how... pick your you physically lift <laughs> your mates off the ground? Like how drunk sometimes. are you when you do that? Oh, yeah, that's when you're drunk and people go, you can't pick me up. And you go, yeah, I fucking can. And then you try and you're like, actually, no, I can't. I am that drunk. Can I go home now? I guess I don't usually get to that level of inebriation where I'm like, I'm going to have to pick you up. (laughs) But maybe that'll be my goal for tonight. And that's when we learn the lovely fact that it's been about a week since he shuffled off this mortal coil. Ooh. Inside his house, Yummy. in Florida, with a broken Slimy. AC. Oh, with a broken the smell AC too. Always hits you like a goddamn wall. Cop tells us he's in the bedroom. Go and look, and uh, do you think they wear like a gas mask or some kind of breathing apparatus? Because it has to smell weird. Yeah, I'm sure they do, but I'm sure you can still smell it. Nothing can stop that sweet, sweet smell of death. I'd be more worried at that point. I'm like, as soon as you touch him, everything is going to liquefy and all the maggots are going to come out of him. So can we just like, I would get like an industrial hose. I would just get a really big stick. Poke, poke. And just poke him. Oh, yeah, we'd all do that. And that's when all the, you know, all the maggots would fly out and you'd go, gross. And then you'd all go and tell your mates. I would be worried about just one massive fart because isn't that what happens? Like the gases are released. Full of gas. Full of gas. Yeah, like uh, that's what I'd be worried about. Hear me out though. If you just stood on like the opposite side of the room with a huge hose, not your dick, an industrial hose, and turned it on and just fired it at him, that's just going to obliterate what's left of him, isn't it? And it's going to get it out the room. Yeah, but it'd probably ruin the house too. Oh, the house is already ruined. Sorry, do you know? Maybe Scorched not. earth policy at this point. I think you gotta get I think you'd have to get like a hazmat suit, some kind of gas mask, and a large a shovel. shovel. A yeah. shovel. There's basically a cloud of flies uh, uh, in the top third of the room. It's sort of a harbinger for the, my own little personal book of Exodus I experienced in there. We're double gloved, of course. And he's laying on his bed diagonal with one leg down touching the ground and uh we go back out grab face shields keep the fly flies out of our eyes is that the face shield, and as we I go guess. back in we need to kind of situate them up on the bed so that we can get our equipment and our body bag and everything laid out and so the first plague comes as i grab his leg to bring it up onto the bed a river of blood comes oozing or gushing or whatever word you want to use out of his leg over my hands down the bedspread and my poor boots just can't catch a break they end up taking the brunt of it getting covered in it end up in kind of a puddle of this shit I call it a river of blood I'm sure blood was in the mix but it's uh, you know sort of a sangria of sorts of various (laughs) fluids now this guy you know, uh, I was hanging out with Ryan Keeley the other day. Oh, and, and this uh, story reminded her of you. <laughs> well, no, you it's, we were going to a show, and uh, she was like, yeah, I, you know, I'm coming home from a shoot. 
I'm just covered in effluvia right now and I need to take a shower and then we can head out to the show. And I was like, did you say effluvia? Great word. Yeah, I was like, that is a great word. I'm like, what do you mean effluvia? She's like, you know, all the juices that come out of a person's body when you're filming porn. I was like, that is fucking gross if you think about it. I was like, definitely take a shower before you sit in my car. I love the word fluvia. Effluvia. It's very evocative. I'm just covered in fluvia. Just give me, just give me ten minutes. It sounds like a stripper's name. Effluvia. <laughs> it sounds like some ghetto rapper, doesn't it? <laughs> the newest single by Fluvia. Fluvia, get over here, biatch. Theoretically, he was a white guy, but he was when we saw him, he was sort of the color of an eggplant. <laughs> I was about to say a purple green. guy. <laughs> Bits of green and brown and black all over oh, everywhere man. on him. Short guy, but really round. Anyways, we after I, we get him set up on the bed, you know, laying flat so that we could bring our equipment in and lay our body bag out and get all that handled. I grab his arms, my partner grabs his legs, and this is where the second plague comes in. Luckily, there was only two. Okay, there is a part two. I'd be nervous about that too, because if you think about it, you got his arms, you got his legs. Don't you think those arms aren't attached as firmly as they would be if the person was living? I like the skin was slippery. You know what else I'm thinking? Like, this guy must have been dressed, but if you die naked, everyone's just looking at your junk, aren't they? Yeah, but it's got to be easier because they have to strip him down at the cadaver's place anyway. But at least the clothing would hold in the guts and everything else. You'd think so. But, I mean, it would be like... You can't help but look at the junk, Eva. So you're looking at a dead man's junk. Like, is that necrophilic of you? Well, I think if you're having sexual thoughts about it, like, are you getting wet while you're looking at the dead man's junk? No, but I'd be looking at the dead man's It's like all I could probably look at. Yeah, but would you be aroused? Like, if it was Brad Pitt, yeah. (laughs) So if it was dead Brad Brad Pitt. Pitt. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would probably take maybe take some selfies for like the the group chat on the WhatsApp, you know, for the lads chat, or maybe would take you a couple be, of selfies of me kissing. Would Brad. you be equally aroused if Brad Pitt was like, you know, if they found his body six months later? No, because it wouldn't look like Brad Pitt, would it? It has to be like a fresh, fresh off the uh, off the death. It'd be like the uh, crypt keeper, Brad Pitt. All right, here's part no, two. No one wants that. Hey, Eddie's preacher again. Sorry. Kind of bumped up against three minutes there. Didn't mean to leave you on such a cliffhanger. Anyways, I grab his arms, partner grabs his legs. And as we slide him off of the bed to, to set him down onto the body bag, uh, his his head snaps back and he had a big double chin, right? The seam under his bottom chin splits open Wah. and another giant plague of flies comes shooting out of them into the room you know and they're all flying and buzzing around to the point that we can't even fucking see really the the room is literally dark with flies it's like beelzebub is being released the lord of the flies it's cool, but I was I would it would be even cooler if it was like a really big fucking scorpion. Or if it had been a really big fucking snake that just tore out of his It just came out of his yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Or a giant maggot. Oh one giant maggot. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh 
we can't even, you know, do what we need to do. We can't just zip them up because we still got to take pictures of the back for the cops and everything else. So we got to get rid of these flies somehow. And I don't know who it was. It wasn't me. Came up with the idea of a garbage bag. And so we end up with this garbage bag, flinging it around the room, catch all these flies and taking them out the back door to let go <laughs> and get them out of the room. That's clever. That, that would have been quite a sight. Uh, wow. So they, it's like, they, you know how like you use a net to catch butterflies? Butterflies, you that's a big what I was thinking too, bag to just, catch flies. Just what? many nights of my youth where I would, just run out of my net on a beautiful day in my white shorts through <laughs> through the fields, just catching butterflies, just catching them, D, and never letting them go again. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly. This is like the the redneck version of it. No, this is like in the ghetto. We use garbage bag and we catch flies. All right. <laughs> so Ain't AP, no butterflies around here. AP, weren't there maggots? Like, where were the maggots? That's what I don't know. If there are flies, they there were the maggots. Been maggots. They were the maggots. Yeah, but there must have also still flies. been maggots. There must still be. Probably, yeah, inside yeah. probably. Inside, but yeah, but the maggots have now, like, well, eaten enough. They've gestated yeah. and become flies. Morphed and there's flies. a special name for these flies, too, that only eat dead bodies. So when they release them outside, those flies are like, fuck, guess I'll die. Yeah, what are we going to eat now? Anyways, that's about the end of the story. It's <laughs> gross. You know, we took the pictures, wrapped them all up, had to spray all everything down, wipe all our boots down. You know, uh, and that's it. You know, twist ending or nothing. All right. Adios. Lick my balls. Well, thank you there, AP, for the riveting story. Um, couple questions I have is, so do you have to strip them down when you put them in the body bag or do you put them in the body bag like with whatever they're wearing at the time of death? Yeah, I don't think he, the mortician will strip them down. Oh, the mortician does. All yeah, because right. the morti- mortician will like note what they're wearing or the coroner, coroner mortician. So I guess, depending. but I mean, I imagine some bodies you probably show up and they're naked. So do you prefer do you them to the be junk? in the buff or do you prefer them to be uh, wearing clothes? And do you look at the junk? Like, what if, like, a really hot chick died who has, like, a fantastic set of knockers? Would you just be, like, stood before you put them in the bag? Just, like, no, let's let's look for a little bit longer. Or is that wrong? I imagine that's unethical. Unless, like, do you, you guys have to have, to have a oath. partner so you're not alone in the room with a corpse? But what if, what if your partner turns to you? And here's another question. What if your partner turns to you and he's like, I'm getting a bit horny and you didn't like care that. and you were like, all right, I'll go and sit outside and I'll drink a Coke and I'll smoke a cigarette and I'll be back in say 13 minutes starting I'm now. Sure, I'm sure they're not that explicit with it. They probably are like, can you give me a minute? I need the room. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. Like that. You know, something like that. <laughs> I'd be yeah, like, all right. I'm going for Coke and a cigarette. I'll be back. Yeah. I'll be back in a few minutes. You know, don't be too loud. And it's kind of gross you that let you're that doing happen? this. You know, I probably would, but I obviously wouldn't want to like be involved with it. But I'd be like, and I, but I would express my discontent. I'd be like, "This is gross, and you shouldn't be doing this." I would be like, "I am going to change your name in the group chat to Dead Dick, so you now have to explain to everyone else in the group chat why you're called Dead Dick." Uh, but if you're fine with that, 
and if you're fine with me making a lot of jokes about how the only pussy you can get is dead pussy, then cool, man, go for it. It's fucking rank. Your new name's going to be CF, cadaver fucker. <laughs> so, sorry. Anyway, thank you, AP. Good to hear from you. People can call the Sigma on hotline, 323-522-4032. Uh, once again, thanks to all the listeners who support us on Patreon. We do really appreciate it. And you are the ones that directly keep this show going. Patreon.com slash wrong. Also, if you want to get some merch, I do have some new shirt designs at the T Public store. Just go to sickerownpodcast.com slash shop. Click on the picture of the Pope. Get yourself some merch. Um, and uh, finally, the Sick and Wrong Song of the Week. We were trying to find something that, was, that would be somewhat appropriate to the, uh, the topic of the show. Well, as it turned out, uh, the band Cabaret Voltaire, the uh, British industrial band, released an album that came out in 1985, same year as the, uh, the initial bombing attempt, right? The rocket launcher bomb? Or no, that was the, the same year that the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord uh, ended up, um, the demise of the, of the CSA was in yeah. 85. 1985 um, was a great year. Yeah, 85 was the, was the year of the siege and the demise. Anyway, the band released an album called The Covenant, The Sword, and The Arm of the Lord. And it's their seventh-length um, uh, full studio album. So uh, pretty interesting one. You know, it turned out I actually have the record. So I was like, I know I have a couple Cabaret Voltaire records. But in the U.S., they wouldn't let them call it The Covenant, The Sword, and The Arm of the Lord. So they had to shorten the U.S. release just to be The Arm of the Lord. Oh, right, yeah. that Because it was funny. very topical at the time, I guess. I guess they read about it in the papers. I, I'm not a Cabaret Voltaire fan. Well, you know, it's funny, the uh, record label, uh, what label was it? Some Bizarre Records were like, listen, you better produce a charting single or we're going to drop you because we're sick of your fucking weird industrial music. Like (laughs) we want something, (laughs) we want something with a beat. So they ended up doing a, uh, a, a track called I Want You, which is kind of like a disco type dance song, definitely with like a dance type beat. It's, it's probably the most. I would say commercially Accessible. viable song yeah, on the viable. album. Um, but uh, Richard, Richard Kirk, lead singer said it was all about masturbation. They did that on purpose. Um, yeah. But the, the, the other uh, unique aspect of this record is they do a lot of, um, a lot of audio clips like Charles Manson and clips from CSA members instructing uh, other members on how to like shoot things and kill people. We're going to end the show here with the fifth song off the record called Hell's Home. So people will be back next week with episode 894. Till then, take a sleazy. And you follow through and you break the target and you should have no trouble any more than I did. For the low house, you keep your same foot position. However, there's one difference in establishing your gun point. You put your gun straight into the line between the eight and the low house. And after you've gotten it in that position, move it a yard towards eight. For a right-handed shooter, this prevents you from shooting your gun in a jerk, and you have a little better chance of moving your gun smoothly with the target.
bollocks this is i shouldn't have to fucking do this shit mate i'm the king what the fuck is this here can you just fucking move this out of the way fucking hell mate being king is bollocks i'm fucking done with this shit